It's possible to be a Christian and yet to act like an atheist. It's possible to call yourself a Christian and yet truly in your heart of hearts to be an atheist. Uh, the, the way that we find out what we really believe in is by looking at how we live our lives. Psalm 14 is, is an amazing psalm that has a really famous line at the beginning of this psalm. And it's, again, speaking to what the wicked person or the foolish person thinks and believes deep down in their heart. Uh, we've seen a, a series of psalms here in the book of Psalms, starting with Psalm 10, that Psalm 10 we saw was heavily focused on the mind of the wicked and had had all of these quotes from wicked people. And it was kind of showing us an inside look at how people think who are evil. And in the following following chapters, we see similar kinds of, of things. We see uh, temptations given to the righteous, words from the, the wicked. We, we see... Um, you know, the enemies of God thinking they can overcome God. And in the middle, we see Psalm 12, which is this, this psalm that has um, this real confidence and a real confidence in God's word. And it really contrasts God's word with the words of sinful people. So this, this entire section has been focused on how wicked people think and what they say. And here in Psalm 14, we have probably the most famous statement out of all of those chapters. So we're going we're gonna to dig into this. Psalm 14, by the way, is very closely related to Psalm 53. In fact, they're basically the same psalm. It's very strange, but there's a few differences. The biggest one, the most obvious one being that Psalm 53 uses the name God in every instance where Psalm 14 uses the name Lord or Yahweh. So that's kind of one of the, the biggest differences. But we'll deal with that when we get to Psalm 53. For now, let's dig into this uh, chapter. So Psalm 14, verses 1 and 3, we see the fool's condition, the fool's condition. So first, David, the psalmist, is going to look at the fool's condition. Um, he's looking at really, you know, evil people. This, this idea of the fool is somebody who is hardened against God, who doesn't believe in God. And he's going to speak to the condition of foolish people and then start looking at humanity as a whole. And he's going to look at the heart first in verse 1. That speaks to the inner person, the, the will, so to speak. And then we'll see he focuses on the head in verse 2, his thinking. And then in verse 3, he focuses on his hands, his action. So the things that he's actually doing in practice. So in the first verse, we see David's perspective as he's looking at the wicked around him. And then in verse 2, it'll shift to God's perspective. So this first section is, is very interesting, and it's also going to come into play later on in Scripture. So let's look at verse 1 of Psalm 14. Verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So again, we have the introduction here of the fool. So this word for fool, when we think of fool, we think of someone who's stupid. That's kind of how we use that in our language today. But in the Bible, it's about uh, your beliefs, about your practice. It's about who you worship. The foolish person is the one who rejects God's wisdom and instead lives for themselves. And so we see real detail about uh, the fool versus the wise person in the book of Proverbs. So, But for here, we see the fool says in his heart that there is no God. So he may not say it outwardly, but deep down inside, the foolish person believes that they that there is no God. 
In fact, he could be speaking about religious people, outwardly religious people in this passage. Because even the religious person, many people who do the outward actions of religion, don't truly believe in God deep down in their heart. So they might have outward expressions of faith, but not the reality of faith. And even those of us who are true believers in Jesus, right, who, who truly love God, even us, when we fail, when we sin, we're showing in our actions that we are functionally acting like atheists, that we're showing that we don't believe that God exists. So foolishness is, is linked to atheism, at least to functional atheism, meaning you're demonstrating by your actions a, a belief that God isn't real and that God's not going to do anything because of what you've done. Every sin is an action that expresses some degree of this functional atheism. Again, think back to Genesis chapter 3. We, I often come back to this chapter because it's so foundational in Scripture. But in Genesis chapter 3, we see the serpent undermining the, the reality of who God is and, and the binding power of his word. Satan tells people that God's word isn't true, that God's judgment isn't scary, and that God's authority isn't absolute. And so in this way, Adam and Eve, they, they couldn't deny the existence of God because they had walked with God, and yet they acted like atheists in that moment, believing that God wasn't going to do anything to punish their sins. So we see that the fool here, he says in his heart, there's no God, and it says they are corrupt they do abominable deeds. That word corrupt is the word for spoil or ruin. And it's the idea that their sin infects the world. So their sin ruins them and it corrupts them, but then it overflows into the world around them and it infects everything in creation. The same word is used a couple times in Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 to 12. Let me read that. Genesis 6, 11, 12 says, Now the earth was corrupt, in God's sight, there's that word corrupt, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So three times that word corrupt is used, and what it's pointing to is that the sin of man before the flood has overflowed and filled up the earth, in a sense. This sort of this, this metaphor, uh, metaphorical picture, the earth is filled with violence. So everywhere, man is spoiling or ruining the world because of their sin. And so God actually has to corrupt the earth or destroy the earth. So God actually uses the same verb to speak of his destruction of the earth. So he's going to wipe it out and then make it new because of how corrupted it has become. So really what we're seeing here is, is pretty straightforward, right? If you're, if you're an atheist, if you don't believe in your heart that God exists, why would you not be corrupt to some degree? Why wouldn't you see what you could get away with? If you think there's no one who can hold you accountable, if you think that there's no one who can limit your power, why not do abominable things? And of course, we see that all the time in our world. There is, there is none who does good, is what this passage says. There's none who does good. This language is reflective of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God sent his angels to go and to search out and to see if there was someone who did good. And they didn't find anyone except for Lot and his family. So, there's a complete lack of wisdom and obedience to God. And so we see that the heart of the fool is fundamentally broken. Well, look at verse 2. He goes on and he expands on this. It says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. 
So the viewpoint here shifts from David's perspective as the writer to now he's talking about God's perspective. This is what God sees. So it's not just that David sees the wickedness around him. God is also perceiving this and is casting a judgment on the earth. So the viewpoint is shifting here. It says the Lord looks down from heaven. And that language reminds us of certain events in scripture. When I read that, I immediately thought of, it's not the same word, it's not the same verb, but it's the same idea. When God in Genesis chapter 11, at the Tower of Babel, he comes down to see what man is building. Or Genesis chapter 6 with, with uh, the, uh, the flood, right? That with the same idea that God is looking and seeing the wickedness on the earth. In fact, this same word is actually used when the angels look down on the city of Sodom and Gomorrah before they go to inspect it. And it's also used after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah when Abraham looks down on the wreckage. So the idea here is a, is a powerful one. God is looking down. And he's, he's looking not just at the fool, as we saw in verse 1, but at the children of man. So here he's looking down from heaven on the children of man. So this is an all-encompassing term. This is humanity as a whole. This is the scope, the breadth of humanity. And what we see here is that there's really not a difference between humanity as a whole and the fool that we saw in chapter 1. Every human in his or her natural condition is a fool, biblically speaking. Every human has embraced atheism instead of seeking the true God, instead of believing in Yahweh. So this is the unredeemed state of man that's being expressed here. And now God is looking at the head. So in verse 1, he looked at the heart of the fool. Now he's looking at the head, the thinking. Now in, in Jewish thought, heart and head were not necessarily separated the way that I'm separating them here. I'm aware of that. So they believe that the heart was the seat of the will and the thinking and all those things and the, and the emotions. Um, so, I, but this is just for you know, kind of my way of thinking of it. Is here we have the understanding is being addressed. Is there any understanding of God? And this word for understand is the word act wisely. So, are there any who act wisely? It's the same verb that's used in Psalm chapter two, verse ten, when we're commanded right to act wisely and to kiss the son, to, to pay homage to the Messiah. So is there anyone who acts wisely? The answer is, is no. Foolishness instead is pervasive. There is no one who has understanding as they should. And there are none who seek after God. You know, we naturally give ourselves the benefit of the doubt as humans. We think that we're basically good people. When we're, when we're born, we think, you know, we're, we have some, some flaws, but we're not that bad. We think of ourselves as seeking after the truth, but the Bible says that humans, apart from Christ, suppress the truth, that we want to hide and push away the truth. And Paul speaks to this universal condition of humanity apart from God in Romans chapter 1, in his very famous passage. I think it's worth quoting it at length here, so I'll read this for you. It'll be on the screen. Romans 1, 19 <clears throat> says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So in other words, it's it's 
kind of reminding us of what we're seeing in the first few verses of, of Psalm 14, which is that humans see God, they perceive God, and yet they choose to be atheists. They choose to suppress that truth. They choose to become foolish in their thinking by rejecting the true knowledge of God. And later we'll see that they actually exchange right, the image of the invisible God for images resembling creation. So there's an exchange that happens, the true God for false gods. So this has always been the condition of man. It's true even now. We do it in different ways without the religious trappings they had back then, but we do it through all kinds of of man-made idols, things that we value more than we value God. So this is the condition of humans. And the psalmist gets even more specific. He moves from the heart to the head and now to the hands. Verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So look at what humans do. They turn aside from God. They turn away from God is the idea. This is the same language that's used when the people turn away from God with worshiping the golden calf in Exodus 32. This is what we see in Exodus 32, verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. There's the same idea we see in this chapter, right? They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. So that turning aside is the same idea here. So in that case, it was turning from worshiping and serving God to create an idol. And here it's the, it's the same basic idea. They've turned aside. They've become corrupt. They've entered into the state of corruption. Their moral state is one of devastation. And they don't do good. In fact, David gets even more emphatic and he says, not even one. He wants to make sure you don't miss that what he's saying about humanity is not just true of some people or most people, but of every person apart from God. It's true of everyone apart from God. Our condition is much worse than we think. So this is God's perspective, and of course, he sees rightly. So we have a, an inside look as to how he sees our foolish actions. Now, maybe you think I'm going a little too far in reading these verses this way. Maybe this strikes you as a little bit down on people or a little bit you know, overly negative or something like that. But we actually have a lot of help here because we can go to the Apostle Paul and see how the Apostle Paul understands these verses because the Apostle Paul quotes these verses in the New Testament in Romans chapter 3. Look at Romans 3, 9. He says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And he goes on to to quote a litany of other Old Testament passages that reinforce the same point. Most of them are Psalms. But his point is so clear. He's saying humans, apart from God, are fully corrupt. Every part of who we are is corrupted by sin. doesn't mean that we're going to be as bad as we could possibly be. God still restrains our sin. Thank God for that. But it means that we are sinful through and through, that we can't do anything that is good in a, in a perfect sense, right? Before God, we can do things that are morally good in comparison to each other, but we can't do things that are good before God because we're always self-focused, we're always idolaters, and sin contaminates every part of who we are. So that's the message we see in the New Testament as well. So that's the first section, the fool's 
condition. And it's the condition of every one of us apart from Jesus. And then we see in verses four to six, we see the fool's terror, the fool's terror. So we have the condition of foolishness, and then we have the result of that kind of lifestyle, which is terror. Look at verse four. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? The psalmist is asking, don't, don't they know? Don't they understand who they're messing with, what they're dealing with? And of course, their problem isn't lack of knowledge. At least it's often not lack of knowledge. The problem is not applying knowledge, which of course is at the heart of what wisdom is. Wisdom is taking what you know and applying it in a way that, that helps you to live life well. The fool won't do that. And so he's, he's marveling at this thing. Don't they understand? Don't they have knowledge? All these evildoers, he, he says they, they are oppressive. They're devouring God's people. They're preying upon God's people. He's, he's saying they eat up my people like they eat bread. Uh, to, to eat someone as you eat bread is kind of a weird metaphor. What does that mean? Well, the first thing that comes to mind for me is that bread is is defenseless. It's not like trying to eat an animal where you have to go hunt it and kill it. Um, bread is just there. It's vulnerable in, in a sense. But probably the better picture, that's, that's my mind, but the, probably the better picture would be that bread is something you eat all the time. It's a normal diet, right? So you So these are people that are consistently constantly, day by day, oppressing God's people and treating them as if they are nothing. And he says, they don't call upon the Lord. They don't call upon the Lord. This is a phrase that can refer to worship or asking God for assistance, seeking the the assistance of God. And it reminds me of Genesis 4.26, which is the first place where we see this kind of language, where it's after um, the, the murder of Abel by Cain. It's after that horrible event and the world has gotten worse and worse. And we see that a son is born to replace uh, to replace Abel named Seth. And then it says in Genesis 4.26, to Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that t- time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So this is the first time we see that, that people are, are reaching out, crying out to God in faith. And yet the foolish person won't do that. They won't have the desperation to come to God and to find an answer to their problems. Instead, they see other people as beneath them. They don't want to seek God's help. They want to live life for themselves. They don't want to bow the knee to him. Verse 5, they are, there they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. So this is important because practicing evil leads to fear and great instability. In the short term, the evil person very often is uh, is very boastful, right? Is very confident, is is able to do evil and get away with it very often. And yet here we see that there is a terror that is coming. Now, what does this mean? Is is this a terror that is present now, or is this a future terror? And if it's future, when does it come? Well, it's not really clear in the Hebrew, but I think that the most natural way to understand this is that this is the terror of future judgment. This is a, a terror that's coming one day. So while today they may feel secure, they may be confident and brash, one day they are going to be melting and quivering in fear before the judgment of God. So this is the confidence that we have, that, that people that practice evil are building their houses on sand and that all of it will one day fully collapse. 
Verse 6 says, You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. So the wicked want to harm the righteous. Apparently they have power, and so they're able to kind of look down on the poor. But the poor, the righteous poor, have a refuge in Yahweh. Those who are desperate, who are needy, can always look to God and find comfort and help. So we see the the, the fool's condition, then we see the fool's terror, and then lastly, we see the faithful's hope. That's verse 7. The last verse here, we see the faithful's hope. So the, the passage kind of ends on an almost surprising statement about God's salvation and this kind of longing for God's salvation. Verse 7 says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. So this first part here is actually a question in in Hebrew. It's who will give salvation for Israel? Who will give salvation for Israel? So there's this expression of longing for God's salvation to come and to come to Zion. Zion, of course, we've seen this word before in the Psalms. This is the name of the holy city, Jerusalem. It can also indicate specifically that the, the hill on which the temple rested. And so in Psalm 2, we saw David uh, talking about in the words of, you know, speaking for the divine in the psalm, but speaking about how God's going to set his Messiah on Zion, his holy hill. So we saw that in Psalm chapter 2. And this city, Jerusalem, really brings together the king and the priest. It's the head of, or it's the capital city for the government. So the king is there and also the priesthood is there. It brings together the human and the divine. Um, in a real way, because that's the city that God picks for his kingdom to be established in the earth. And it's here that God's going to reveal his salvation because of that, right? There's going to be one who comes who's king and priest, who's human and divine, who brings salvation in this city. And so he says, right, when the Lord restores the fortune of his people. I love this because it's a when, not if. It's not if God's going to restore the fortunes. And really this idea of restoring the fortunes is overturning the captivity of the people. That God's going to bring them out of exile, bring them back to the land, settle them again. And it's not a matter of if that will happen. It's just a matter of when. God's promises are so sure. But the, the psalmist here is longing for that, that God can bring an end to the suffering and the pain of his people. So even in this psalm, which focuses so much on the character of evil evil people, ends with this exclamation of the hope that God's people will have. So what are some practical thoughts from this? Well, again, one thing that I want to really impress on us is it's possible to be a Christian fool, right? To be either a fake Christian, right? To claim the name of Christ and yet to not have real faith in Yahweh or to be a real Christian, but to act at times like the fool, to act like an atheist, to, to show in your actions that you don't believe that God is real, that he's not going to actually hold you accountable for your sins or that your sins don't matter. And so we have to take this seriously. We're warned again and again of this danger of false belief in the Bible And we have to examine ourselves and take this very seriously to see if we're in the faith. So that's one thing. Also, what we see in this that's so prominent is that the heart matters above all else. The heart, the center of who we are, right? How we think, how we make choices, our inner being is the most important thing about us. And so we'd be so foolish to neglect how we think and what we believe. We have to really examine not just our outward actions, but what we believe deep down inside. 
Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So watch your heart, guard your heart, because your life is going to flow out of what you believe and what you think. So we have to be careful about our hearts. Also, and most importantly, we can know the answer uh, to that question at the end, right? To that question of who will give salvation to God's people. We know the answer to that. We know who's going to come to Zion to, to carry his cross, right? To, to die a sacrificial death, to be raised from the dead. We know that Jesus does this work for us. And we know that he takes those who have gone astray, who have turned aside, as we saw in verse 3. Isaiah 53, 6 kind of answering this problem, says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we are those people, right? We are those people who have turned aside, who've chosen foolishness instead of choosing God. We're not the good guy in this story. Uh, We're the bad guy. And yet God, in his grace, in his mercy, has provided a sacrifice for you and for me. It's an amazing thing. So, so we know what wickedness looks like from this passage, but more than that, we can know that the, the need that we have for Jesus and the answer that only he can give. 